Okay, so the first page is page 484, and then we're going to flip over to Romans 6 on page 799. So starting off in Isaiah. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. The mountains, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will set up disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised up from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We have been united with him in this we have been united with him like this in his death. We will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we no, should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the lives he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are, under not, you are not under the law but under grace. If last week was like a kind of scenic helicopter ride. This week is going to be a bit like a crazy rally race. Remember last week we sort of gently hovered over two great moments, big moments in human history. We hovered over the beginning in the garden and then we hovered over the end in the garden city. Well this week is like a, a crazy rally drive because we're going to be doing a mad dash to see how these these two, how the beginning gets to the end. Today we're going to be tearing through the entire history of this world, history past and history future, taking corners at ridiculous speeds to see how God plans to bring the beginning through to the end, through to the last day, the first day 
joining the last day. Just before we start, though, let me remind you where we're headed, what we saw last week. Last week, we saw that God's plan for his world, his goal that he's, he's always had in mind, is to dwell at rest with his people in a world that can't be tainted or lost or desecrated. Before time even began, God pledges himself to be the God who is with his people. And so when the fall happens, humanity sins, God doesn't abandon humanity. Instead, he sets in motion a long-term plan that will not only undo the curse of the fall, but will bring creation to its goal. So try to keep that in mind at every point today, because that goal... It guides every part of God's plan. So everything that we see on this crazy rally today is driving towards that finish line. All right, we're ready to start. So hold on tight because in the next five minutes, we're going to cover about a thousand years. And what we see from these thousand years is that God's plan to bring this world to its goal is going to require His massive intervention at the end of history. All right, we're on our way. As soon as Adam and Eve reject God's goal for creation by rejecting Him, God responds. He calls things for what they are and He punishes them appropriately. So blessing is replaced with cursing. Rest is replaced with toil. Life is replaced with death. Harmony is replaced with division. And God sends them out of His garden paradise into the world still with the same calling to fill the world and subdue it, but now they have the inability to do it properly. Their purpose is frustrated. From here, humanity keeps reaching new lows and God keeps responding to each new problem. But it's not until we get to Genesis 12 that we see God do more than just respond to a specific crisis. With Abraham, we see God set in motion a long-term plan. That's what's going on here. This is God setting in in motion a long-term plan to undo the curse and to bring blessing to the entire world. And the heart of God's plan is this. God's going to bring the world to its goal through the descendants of Abraham. Now, the details aren't clear at this point, but the fact that God's going to be executing His plan from here on in through a nation to undo the curse and to bring blessing, that is crystal clear. All right, we've made it around the first corner on our rally drive, so we're going to keep going, but now it's going to get a little bit faster. So we see God's plan go forward as Abraham's descendants become the nation Israel. We don't have time today to see how that happens, but if we did, what we'd keep seeing is that on every single page of Israel's history, we see God's goal shaping the plan. So, for example, in Exodus 3, just before Israel has properly become a nation, God says to Moses that he's seen Israel suffering as slaves. So, verse 8, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you see how God's goal is steering the plan here? God has come down to be with his people. 
He's come down to rescue his people. That's what you see in the plagues. It's what you see as the Red Sea is split apart. God has come down to rescue his people and to bring them to a paradise, to a land of rest. Not Eden, but the promised land. And then that's exactly what we see happens. God comes down and he rescues them. God comes down at Mount Sinai to make them into a nation and to give them his law. God comes down in the tabernacle, a kind of mobile temple where he dwells with his people. God's plan to bring this world to its goal is happening through the nation of Israel. Okay, that was about three corners in one just there. Are we all still in the car at this point? If we have lost you, you've fallen out somewhere around that corner. If you go to our website, you'll find there a series called 10 Pop-Up Moments where we, we take each of these corners a lot slower. If this is kind of new stuff to you, let me encourage you to do that. It's really, really important to see the way that God's plan fits together. But for now, jump back in the car if you've, if you've fallen out and let's keep going. Because as we race across Israel's history, what we keep seeing is that God's plan seems to be constantly failing. There's a people, yes, the nation of Israel. They're at rest in the promised land. And God even dwells with them in the tabernacle and then the temple. But far from seeing the curse undone and and far from seeing God's goal for this world being achieved, what we see instead is the fall of the garden being played out over and over and over again. It's miserable. Eventually, God says through the prophet Hosea in in Hosea chapter 1 verse 1, like an adulterous wife, This land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. Race across the Old Testament, and you keep seeing a nation that doesn't want to be God's people. You see a temple that shows that people can never really dwell face-to-face with God. And you see a land that, far from being a place of rest, is turned into a place of injustice and oppression and evil. At this point, God's plan, it looks like a complete failure. But actually, even all of this is playing a part in God's long-term plan. Because Israel's history teaches them... And it teaches us something absolutely essential for us to get. Something that we refuse to see. And that is that in and of ourselves, we are unable and uninterested in dwelling with God. And you look around at this religious world. It's not particularly religious in Australia, perhaps. But our world is incredibly religious. And it might seem to contradict what I just said, that we're unable and un interested in dwelling with God. Apparently, eight out of ten people identify with some kind of faith in this world. That's pretty high. It looks like we're interested in God. But Israel's history shows that our rejection of God runs far deeper than we realize. That's what God wants us to see here. God demonstrates in Israel's history 
that he will never be able to dwell with his people while ever it's in any way dependent on them. Because if things depend on people, if it depends on us, it will all just keep falling over again and again. A necessary part of God's plan was showing the world that what, what is needed is a massive end-time intervention from him. A massive intervention at the end of history. And that's exactly the, the message that the prophets, God's prophets, start to speak to Israel. We saw that actually in what Simon read just before in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1. This is just one part of it. Isaiah writes in the 8th century BC, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And then if you keep reading across the rest of the book of Isaiah or in Micah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Hosea, Malachi, they all say the same thing. God's plan to bring this world to its goal, it's going to take a massive intervention at the end of history. It's the only way. Listen to how a uh, scholar called G.K. Beale summarises this kind of end-time hope that the prophets have. This is how they pictured the massive end-time intervention that was needed. They pictured that after a final unsurpassed period of tribulation for God's people, that God would deliver them from this. Everyone would be resurrected and God's kingdom would be established. At this future time, God will rule on earth through a coming Davidic king who defeat all opposition and reign in peace in a new creation over both the nations and a restored Israel with whom God will make a new covenant and on whom God will bestow his spirit and among whom the temple will be rebuilt. That should ring true for what you, what you read in the Old Testament as you, as you read across it. This is God's massive intervention at the end of history that the prophets were all longing for. Well, how are we doing on the rally at this point? Feeling car sick yet? (laughs) We've been tearing through God's work in history incredibly quick. I mean, trying to join the dots between the beginning and the end, it's a pretty ambitious drive. The good news is that with that last corner that we just tore around, the finish line has just come in view. The end. It's, it's just, just popped up. We're about to achieve what we set out to do, to join the beginning to the end. But the bad news is, we're seeing the finish line here already. This is actually an incredibly confusing thing, because we should not be seeing it right now. We're about to pass through the finish line, when in reality, we're just settling into this track. We should not be hitting the end yet, but we are. And as we come up to it, there's going to be some crazy driving. So if you're not already holding on tight, now's the time to start. You see, it's at this point that Jesus turns up on the scene and he says that the last days have come near. Look at Mark 1 verse 15. He says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus brings God's massive end-time intervention into history. At the start of Jesus' ministry, 
he's invited to do a reading in a synagogue. And he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which is all about this end time kind of hope. And Jesus unrolls it till he gets to Isaiah 61. And then we read in Luke 4.18 that Jesus reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is all end time kind of things that the prophets were longing for. And then now look at what Jesus does next in verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says the massive end time intervention that the prophets were longing for has come with him. Now it's actually not just what he says that shows this, it's, it's what he does as well. So often when we think about Jesus' miracles, we think they kind of prove that he's God's son, that he's someone special. But they're doing more than that. They are doing that, but they're doing more than that. They proved that what the prophets longed for has arrived. So Jesus confronts evil spirits and and he overcomes the devil. And he tells us exactly how we should be interpreting this in Luke 11.20. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In God's massive end-time intervention, our enemy, the devil, would be dealt with. And in Jesus, we see that that end-time reality has arrived. Sickness would also be overcome. And when Jesus heals people, we see that end-time reality arrive. Nature would no longer be a terror. And as Jesus calms the storm with a word, walks on water, we see that end-time reality arrive. God would provide everything that his people needed. And as Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a a few crumbs, we see that end-time reality arrive. It's clear that Jesus sees himself bringing God's massive end-time intervention into history. But there seems to be some things lacking, don't you think? Like, from our list before, where's the resurrection of people back to life? Or where's the defeating of the nations and where's God's judgment of evil and setting everything right? See, that's what people like John the Baptist wanted to know. John had told them to expect judgment. In Matthew 3.10, John says, The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he told the people that the axe wielder was just about to come in verse 11. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But near the end of his life, John the Baptist is looking at Jesus And he's not seeing that unquenchable fire that he was expecting. And so from prison, he sends a message to Jesus in Matthew 11.3. He says, 
Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus tells the messengers to go back and to report the end time events that they're seeing with their own eyes, the miracles. And then he turns to the crowd and he says in verse 11, Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John's great. He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets who longed for God's massive end-time intervention. But he misses seeing something that even the least in the kingdom will get to see. See, what John didn't get to see was that the end had arrived, not just in Jesus' life, but in his death and in his resurrection, neither of which John got to see because he'd been killed by then. It's not really what anyone was expecting. But Jesus' death and resurrection are end-time events. God wants us to see the cross this way. That's why he he frames the cross with end-time events. The skies turn black. There's an earthquake. People are even temporarily resurrected from their graves. These are all end-time signs that the prophets talked about. And, And resurrection was the great end-time hope that the prophets talked about. So we don't have any choice but to think of Jesus' resurrection as an end-time event. There's no other way to think about it from the Bible's point of view. There's no doubt that Jesus' life, death and resurrection are end-time events. The problem is they're happening at the wrong time. They're happening within history rather than at the end of history. And they're happening to one person and not to everyone. So we've just sailed through the finish line. We've just seen the end, God's massive intervention. But somehow the rally goes on. And it's not just that we're doing another lap. We've reached the end now, but somehow at the same time, we've not yet reached the end. The race continues. When I was a teenager, I was was a little bit rebellious and a a little bit stupid. So when an even more rebellious and even more stupid friend of mine drove an unlicensed car to school, even though he wasn't old enough yet to have his license, for some stupid reason I said that I'd uh, get a lift back with him home. I was in the back seat of this 70s Ford Katina that had no seat belts in it for some reason and after about two minutes on the back roads, which equals, in case you're wondering, about 10 donuts and about 20 burnouts, getting flung from side to side with my head hitting the window, I was starting to wish that I could jump out the door and run away home while still looking cool. (laughs) Maybe you're feeling like that now. Hang in there. Let's keep going and see if we can bring this home. And yes, in case you're wondering, that illustration had no point except to give you a mental break. (laughs) Jesus has brought the end into history. And yet the end of history is still to come. Do you see what this means? This is what it means. God's plan to bring this world to its goal is inaugurated with Jesus' first coming, but it's not consummated until his second coming. Jesus' life, death and resurrection really are last day events. But what the Old Testament prophets expected to happen at one point at the end of history... Jesus reveals us beginning with him 
but not fully being wrapped up until his second coming. It's like the prophets saw one massive mountain in the distance, one massive event. But Jesus comes along and he shows that what they were actually seeing was a cluster of events. One hill, one mountain behind another. What the prophets couldn't see from their perspective was that there would be a gap opened up by Jesus between some of these events. Jesus starts the last days with his first coming, but he doesn't close them until the very last day comes with his second coming. One pretty helpful way to think about this that you've you've probably heard before is an illustration from World War II about the difference between D-Day and V-Day. See, when was World War II won? Was it on V-Day, Victory Day? Or was it actually on D-Day? In many ways, it was as, as they stormed the shores of Normandy that World War II was won. It was that massive Allied offensive that broke through the German defences and then and there sounded the end of World War II. D-Day was the beginning of the end of the war. Jesus' life, death and, and resurrection is the invasion of the last day into history, unexpectedly brought forward by God. And there in Jesus' life, death and in his resurrection, Jesus triumphs. He does everything that's needed to achieve God's goal for this world. He does everything that's needed to bring this world to that point where God can dwell with his people at rest in a world that can no longer be tainted. But instead of ending things then and there, he opens up a gap, a time of grace before the very last day. It's actually more like an overlap than a gap. See, the prophets expected that it would be like this. They expected the old age, the current age, to end and then the new one to start, like you can see in that diagram. But Jesus starts the new age while at the same time continuing the old age for a time. But when that very last day comes, the overlap will finish, the gap will be over and this old age we're in right now will pass away. And you see, this is the point. It's at this point that we've finally joined all the dots together on the rally. We started at the garden and then we hit the finish line in a, in a completely unexpected place. And now we're seeing the finish line again, but this time we're seeing it more like we were expecting to see it. This is where we see everything put right. This is where we see the garden city descend onto the earth. This is where we see everyone resurrected. This is where we see everyone face God's judgment. Everyone. Unless, unless we've already faced it. Unless we get to that finish line and we find that we've actually already crossed it before. See, what Jesus has done by bringing the end into history is that he's made a way for us to experience end-time realities already, now, in our past. John the Baptist was right to expect Jesus to come 
and to bring an end-time consuming fire. And he did actually. Jesus brought it, but instead of turning it on people, Jesus turned it on himself. At the cross, Jesus was taking that end-time judgment onto himself. Do you see what this means? It means that if we belong to Jesus, our end-time judgment has already happened. It's why Paul can say to us in Romans 6, we are those who have died to sin. Because we have in Jesus. There's no judgment ahead for us because our judgment has happened in the past. Because Jesus has taken hell on the cross in our place already. That is, if we belong to Jesus, of course. If we don't belong to Jesus, then our judgment is still future. It isn't in our past. Have you heard the idea that the safest place to stand in a bushfire is on ground that's already been burned? It's the idea that when, when ground's already been burnt, there's nothing left to burn. So if there's a fire, the safest place is to put yourself there. Well, when we come to Jesus, it's like that. We stand on ground that's already been burnt, never to be burnt again. Our judgment for all sin, I mean, think about it, all sin, past, present, sin, future, all sin, our judgment for all of that is already in the past. There's nothing more to come. If you haven't yet thrown your lot in with Jesus, you're actually missing the point of this gap in time that Jesus has opened up for us. See, this this gap exists so that we can hear about what Jesus has done and having heard that we can respond to Him by bringing ourselves under His loving rule. The new age and the old age overlap. And what this overlap means for us is that in Jesus, we already have everything that belongs to the new age. We have it already. But it's not until He comes again that we'll see the full results of what we have in Him. We have every spiritual blessing now, but we await the time when we will see it. We will see them all physically. Next week, we're going to look in more detail how that works, what that looks like, to have every spiritual blessing of the new age now in this old age, and yet to, have, to long for every spiritual blessing to come to us physically. That's next week. But today, we've reached the end of the rally. Now, I said at the beginning not to forget God's goal in all of this because every bit of God's plan unfolding across history is steered by His goal. God pledged Himself to be God who dwells with His people. And the whole history of Israel... And of the world actually shows that while ever this goal depends on us, it's just never going to happen. But by bringing the last day into history, Jesus has shown that there's a way now opened up. Jesus, a perfect human of infinite value because he is himself God, representatively steps in to take the place of his people. And because of that, he's opened up a way that we can dwell with God that's not based on our performance. 
a way that's based on his performance already done in the past. Do you see how brilliant that is? How perfect that is for us? That even before the beginning of time, God's plan was always to be God dwelling with his people through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it blows our mind, your plan for this world. Not simply the complexity of it, but more so that you would have made this pledge to be our God, to dwell with us before the beginning of this world. And Lord, that you would have committed yourself to this and been faithful to this, even though you knew before the beginning of this world the cost that it would take. Lord, it blows our mind that you would place our judgment in the past by taking our judgment in Jesus at the cross. Lord, help us to see the wonder of this, that our end time reality is life and joy and peace eternally with you because Jesus took hell for us there at the cross. Lord, if we've not yet placed our lives completely in the hands of Jesus, open our eyes to see that our future is not safe, that our future is facing your wrath. And Lord, help us to see that you have opened up a gap now for us to come to you. And Lord, please, if that is our situation, cause us to come to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.